And we'll begin with a word of prayer. Let's bow our heads. Father, we, we pray for a lot of humility tonight as we enter into the words and the world of Amos. And we pray to, to have the kind of humility that allows his words to challenge us the way that you want them to challenge us, Father, and, and to, to change those areas in our life that are in need of reformation and to, to repent where necessary, Father, and to find ourselves more boldly obedient to your word. <coughs> we also pray, Father, that as we study this word that we will learn that, that our minds will be enriched, that, that our souls will be expanded, that, that our hearts more in love with you. And, and so to this end, we pray for eyes that see and ears that hear. Bless our church. And we pray that with all of our might that we follow your word, that we step in the footsteps of our, our Savior and our, our Prince, Jesus of Nazareth. And that as his disciples, Father, we endeavor with all of our strength to emulate his life in all that we do. Father, bless us and bless us mightily in his name. Amen. I, uh, for a lot of uh, years, and, and maybe this is your experience as well, uh, did not have a real handle on the prophets, major or minor, until I studied them under the great Old Testament professor here in the United States, Gary V. Smith. And I think that I was, uh, I was blessed more by his class on the prophets than I have just about been blessed in any class of theology through undergraduate and graduate school. And uh, just, uh, just to give you a, uh, kind of an example, a personal example of just how powerful that teaching had, had uh, impacted me, uh, while I was in graduate school studying with Dr. Smith, uh, Dr. Dr. Smith was was not a very slick individual at all. He was uh, he was a short man, short sleeves with a tie, pocket protector, crammed with pins, real thick glasses, cheap haircut, and he was uh, he was he was a, a, an old plowboy, a former plowboy uh, from the state of Iowa. There was nothing really pretentious about him at all, except that his insight into Scripture was just about second to none. And I can remember uh, him going over the latter chapters of the minor prophet Micah. One afternoon, windows are open. It's a little bit, uh, little bit hot in the classroom. And I'm just taking notes feverishly. If you've ever seen me take notes, I, I try to write down every word. I'm just taking notes. No, 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 no notes. Just taking them all down. When I realize that there's what looks like sweat that is hitting that paper. And it turned out it wasn't sweat at all. I kind of stopped for a minute and I realized that there were tears in my eyes. So powerful was his teaching on this book. And he opened up Amos to me and, and, and has written a couple of commentaries on Amos that I have in my library. It is just an unbelievable book. And I want us to, to look at it with, with open eyes and with humble hearts over the next couple of weeks. First question I want us to kind of look at as we set the background to the book of Amos is to answer the question, who was the shepherd of Tekoa, which was a military town not far from Bethlehem, by the name of Amos? What we know about him is that he lived in the 8th century. Yadin uh, 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 dates that earthquake that's mentioned in the first chapter somewhere between 762 and 760 B.C. So we're talking about the time of Jeroboam II, uh, who is a descendant of Jeroboam I. And it's in that 8th century that he lived. His name, Amos, 
in Hebrew means somebody that carries a load or a carrier of a load. And he is preaching during the time in which that kingdom is divided. There are two, two tribes to the south and ten tribes that have gone to the north. And you remember the story after the death of Solomon. There is a row between Jeroboam I and Rehoboam who is the king and the son of Solomon. It has to do over continued construction in the land and how Rehoboam is going to get that done by the end of, of whip. And the people decide to revolt and they follow Jeroboam and they set up places of worship in the north. And those ten tribes have separated themselves never to be united again with the two tribes in the south. And one of the reasons that they're not going to listen to him in the north, he is going up into north Israel to those ten tribes. One of the reasons that when he goes up there, they're, they're not giving him an ear. They're not really listening to what he has to say is that by his own admission, he is not a trained prophet. He's a shepherd. And then later on in the book, he is described as somebody as, uh, that works with fig trees. So in other words, he's, he's a farm boy. He is, he is a country boy. And he's going to be car uh, called on the carpet a little bit later in the book because he's not this professional prophet. That's going to be in chapter 7. But another reason that he is not readily listened to in this book, and this is a very important reason, is because he's from the south. He is somebody from south Judah that has gone into northern Israel. He's gone from those two tribes in the south and has gone to the ten tribes in the north to preach a message that's not very positive whatsoever. He is calling Israel to repent. And he has a really, really tough problem because Amos is sent to preach a message of repentance to a people who did not believe that they had a reason to do so. That's part of his burden. He's going up there to try to get people to change their lives, and they're saying, why do we need to change our lives? Everything is going great. This must be a sign that God is really on our side by the way that we are getting blessed. God sends Amos to address their spiritual problems and their spiritual issues and the injustice in the land and the oppression and the... the the, the inequalities of North Israel at a time when they didn't think that they had any. He's sent to preach to Israel during a time that is considered really to be, they are at the apex, they're at the peak of their power. It's their golden era. Their boundaries are about as wide as they're ever going to get. In fact, Jeroboam II ruled more land than any other king in Israel since the days of Solomon. You get an idea of the expanse of that land in 2 Kings chapter 14. At the same time, they are developing a pretty strong army. Nobody is messing with them right now. I'll talk about that in a minute. And what that does is allow them to gain some prosperity. And gaining that prosperity, they're able to begin to build a pretty powerful army. Their economy is booming because they are expanding their trade routes or expanding the borders of the kingdom. They are able to bring in all of these trade routes. And so on paper, North Israel looks really, really good. They are, business is booming. Economically, they're strong. they got a strong army. Nobody is messing with them. And the reason for that is the, the, the sort of the, the, the enemy of God's people, especially North Israel, for a long period of time had been Syria, just up to the north. And right now, Syria is in uh, a, a decline. They are descending down the ladder as one of the great powers in the world during this period of time. During this period of time as well, as Syria is going down, there's another country to the east, that is beginning to ascend, a country by the name of Assyria. And during this period of time in which Syria and Assyria are wrestling with one another, Israel is being left alone for the first time in a long time. And so they're using that time to develop, and they're using that time to prosper. 
But one of the things, even if it's just a cursory reading of the Old Testament, one of the things that reading the Old Testament reveals is that North Israel, even though they are booming, even though it's great prosperity, even though militarily they are becoming a power, they are led by one wicked king after another. Jeroboam II is no different. In 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 24, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit, which means that he is leading them into idolatry. I'll talk more about that in a minute too. But as all of this prosperity is beginning to develop, and as, as uh, the, the, the obedience to Torah is beginning to diminish, there is this upper class that is beginning to develop that believed that the prosperity that they were experiencing was a sign that God was on their side. But really, the opposite was true. Look at this verse, Amos chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Verse 4, you lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves you strum away on the harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. In other words, this prosperity is a sign to you that this is the direction, this is the life, this is everything is going great, and you do not see with spiritually awake eyes what is happening to, to the children of Joseph. Something is wrong in North Israel, although it looks like everything is going right. So Amos's burden is really the sin of North Israel. It's the sin. It's, it's the terrific, horrific sin of North Israel. And at the heart of Amos' message in his call for them to repent and to change their ways and to revolutionize the way that they, they relate to God is, is, is justice. And, and the issue, when we talk about justice in Amos, the issue is not that people were making money. Making money is absolutely no problem. Uh, making money is part of, of, of the, the abilities that God gives us. The problem was that the haves were getting richer at the expense of the have-nots, and they were using their power and influence in a corrupted way in order to keep the have-nots and the vulnerable and the powerless from getting any kind of power or any kind of step up in life. Now we're going to look at these verses a little bit more in detail as the weeks go on, but look at Amos chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. This is part of a song that Amos uses to try to get the people to wake up to their sin. We'll talk about this next week. But at the end of this song, after they, all of Israel has gotten used to singing the song and has really joined in and carrying on with Amos and singing about the three and the four sins of all of the other nations, he lands on Israel. And he says in verse 6, this is what the Lord says, Ko Amar Adonai, first verse of the song, Ko Amar Adonai, this is what the Lord says, for three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, they trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son, get this, father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. Now that tells you a little bit about the power of the corruption of, 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 uh, of ungodly riches in the heart of these people. They could expressly violate and disobey the Word of God, but the fact that they were being blessed financially trumped 
the Word of God. And then in Amos chapter 5, you levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. These are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Amos chapter 8, just three chapters later, verse 4. Hear this. You who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? In other words, I can't wait for the final amen to be said and church dismissed so I can get out there and and do business. Skimping on the measure, boosting the price and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. And one of the most famous verses in all of Amos, it has been used a lot in the 20th century of North America, Amos chapter 5 and verse 24, let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Which kind of brings up a very interesting question. What does it mean to talk about justice and injustice in the book of Amos? Now, in the Bible... To talk about justice or injustice is not a plea for more cops on the beat. It's not to get more cops out there to make sure that crime goes down, even though that's an incredibly important thing. And to talk about justice and injustice is not to try to get larger prisons or to get stricter sentences. In the Bible, biblically speaking, justice has more to do with how we treat the innocent than how we treat the guilty. Let me say that again. Justice has more to do with how we treat the innocent than how we treat the guilty. Justice in the Bible is much of the time an economic issue. Theologically, it is based on the first words of the Bible that tell us that God created everything. Therefore, it is not ours to be hoarded. In other words, God created the heavens and the earth and said it was good and created man and woman and told them to to multiply on the earth and to and to enjoy the earth, the point being that He wanted everyone to benefit from His good creation. And there were teachings in Torah that underscored this theologically. In Exodus chapter 22, when it came to how you you treated somebody, a a fellow Jew, when it came to to lending them money, if you lend money to one of my people among you who is is needy, do not treat it like a business deal, charge no interest. That is, if you've been blessed and this person has not, bless them. And then in Leviticus chapter 19, when when talking about the poor in the land and how they're to sustain themselves and feed themselves, uh, Moses says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. And then, uh, you know, if, if you got into debt and you were to sell yourself uh, for a period of time to one of your neighbors in order to pay off that debt. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, this is what Moses has to say. If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you six years, in the seventh year you must let them go free. And then when it came to land purchases, when you were buying from somebody else, Leviticus 25, do not take advantage of each other, but fear your God. I am the Lord your God. God's laws in Torah were established in order for everyone to be blessed by the goodness of His creation and for it not to fall into the hands of a few who would use it selfishly. 
and what God saw in northern Israel. And what God sent Amos up to address was, was to, to speak directly to everyone about their sinful relationship with God, but in particular to the rich who were using their power to keep the poor in their place. And to these people, Amos went to tell them, as John read for us, that the Lord is roaring. Now, when does a lion roar? Right before he pounces. And so what Israel, who knew what lions were all about, when they heard Amos say that the Lord is roaring, there is a lion that roars from Zion, what they were supposed to hear is that God is getting ready to pounce. And the question is, how do we save ourselves? What are we supposed to do to keep this calamity from coming down on us? In Amos chapter 4 and verse 12, Therefore this is what I will do to you, Israel, and because I will do this to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. Over and over and over and over again in this book is a call for them to repent and to recognize the presence of God. A God who will forgive them if they repent or a God that will bring judgment on them if they don't. And two years after Amos began to preach, there is an earthquake that put an exclamation point on what Amos is saying. Now one of the interesting things about this book, and we know this from history, is that the Assyrians are the ones that, that came down and wiped out in 721 those ten tribes wiped out the capital in Samaria, took those ten tribes into oblivion. But what's interesting about Amos is that Amos is really talking about the Assyrians coming as God's judgment. But the Assyrians are never mentioned. And the reason for this is that God, not the Assyrians, are He is the one that they are going to have to do business with. He is the one, not the Assyrians, that are bringing that is bringing the judgment. The Assyrians coming is not some random historical occurrence. It is the judgment on God, of God, by, by God. It's, it's a judgment on the people of God by God because they did not heed His call to repent and to change their life and to revolutionize the way that they interacted with one another so that there is justice in the land. The lion is roaring. And sadly, there is no indication that anyone that anyone in North Israel paid much attention to what Amos had to say. In fact, the, the opposite is true. They really did fight with him a lot over what he had to say. But as we close tonight, Amos teaches us two things to think about. The first is God is not fooled by superficial worship. God is not fooled by superficial worship. Amos is not the only place where this is addressed. It's addressed all through the prophets. True worship and obedience to God that is heartfelt go hand in hand. And yet what is happening in North Israel with those ten tribes, the majority of the people of Israel is hypocrisy. And as those idols were being introduced into the land, I mean these were idols that you could point to and say that's an idol. It's not as much, uh, it's not quite as apparent as it is today. The, the idols that we struggle with today are a little bit more private. But in this period of time, there were, there, were, there were idols that were actually in the land that could be pointed to. And they could be pointed to as, as an idol that was set up against the holiness and, and, and the righteous presence of God in Israel. And as Israel allowed those idols to come in, and the practices that those idols demanded of them, the worship that the idols uh, uh, commanded of them, 
what happened, as in any relationship, that exclusive relationship that they have with God, all of that energy, all of that devotion, all that exclusivity is being siphoned away from God Himself to this idol because that's where a lot of the energy is going as well. And the reason I go to that idol is because He's meeting a problem that I have or He's answering a question that I have in a way that, at least to me, sounds better or is easier or more comfortable or is going to bless me more than what I'm hearing from God. And as that that exclusionary relationship with God is diminished, then the strong voice of God, that is, His vital, vibrant, dynamic Word, becomes less and less authoritative. You know, think about it in terms of a marriage. If a marriage begins to go south, you know, in those first years of a marriage, you know, if the wife says something, the husband does it. If the husband says something, the wife does it. But if there begins to be a third party in that relationship, the one whose energy is being siphoned off, the, the, the intimacy is being siphoned off to that third party, whenever that spouse says something, nah. why? Because that person is not as important as they once were, not as singular in your life as they once were, not the apple of your eye the once as they were at one time. And as God is diminishing in the, the eyes of those ten tribes, so did the desire to live by God's Word. And as God's Word, Torah in particular, began to be diminished and, and their knowledge of it began to shrink and their adherence to it shrunk even faster, then what happened is that there was a gateway of injustice that opened up that allowed certain individuals in northern Israel to run havoc through that culture. And we've already seen where a father and a son were using sexually the same maid girl, slave girl. We see the poor being sold for silver and for a pair of sandals. We see, we see all this disdain for the Word and the presence of God in their life because of those idols. And Judaism, as it was practiced hypocritically in, the north, in north Israel, became a voice to the powerful rather than a voice for the poor. God is not fooled by superficial worship. And that's why over and over and over and over again, God is calling for a heart. In Hosea chapter 6, with Jesus quotes in Matthew chapter 9 with the Pharisees, you don't really get it. Their religion is pretty superficial as well. It's shallow. What he says, in Hosea, he quotes Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, which is actually the word chesed, which means, which means a devotion, a continuing, abiding, profound, consistent, you know, to the high pitch of loyalty, devotion to one person. I desire chesed, not burnt sacrifices. What God is saying is that you can go through all of the motions you want, but I'm not fooled by that because your heart is not with me. How do I know your heart's not with me? I see it in the way that you treat everybody else. And then number two, God's people will, will practice God's justice. When Paul was converted over in the New Testament, he went to Jerusalem and shared his version, what he was preaching, what he, uh, he understood the gospel to, to be as it was delivered to him by Jesus. And the apostles in Jerusalem heard it and they just thought, yes, we're on the same page. Go and preach. And then Galatians chapter 2 and verse 10, all they asked, that is the apostles, was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. And then as James is writing that general epistle to the church, one of the things that he's helping the people to understand as they practice their faith on a daily basis is that it involves more than just 
showing up at the right time and at the right place and singing the right kinds of songs and doing it on key and, and, and making sure that you're giving at least a portion of your income, that it involves more than that. And so he says, this is the religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless. It's this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. And guess what? That word and in the original text is not there. It's not two separate things. We are, in fact, I'm guilty of this. I've preached lots of sermons on how to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. You know what? In the original text, they're together. You know how you keep yourself from being spotted in the world? That pure religion that is without spot, that is without, you know, without the blemishes, that's beautiful in the sight of God, taking care of orphans and widows. That is those who are weak in your community, those that don't have a voice, those that don't have influence or power on their own, you make sure that they are taken care of the way that God takes care of you. Those are not two separate things. You know, the, the, the more I think about Amos, the, the more I think that it is an extremely relevant book, even though you know, it was written nearly 3,000 years ago. The things that face us in, in this community and, and in this nation and in this world that we live, the, 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 the ramped up violence and the violent mindset, not only in our own culture, but is, but is around the world. There is as, as, as great a need for justice in the world to be practiced the way that God mandates it in His Word than I've really ever seen in my entire 52 years of living. And one of the things that Amos is going to teach us is exactly how important that is, not only to the world, but to God. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. It's an invitation to you during the singing of this song to come and to make your life right with God if you've been out of step with Him. Or it's an opportunity for you to find yourself entering the kingdom of God through participating in the death, burial, and resurrection. Your sins being washed away in baptism after confessing that Jesus is your Lord and there are no others, and, and repenting of a life in which you were going in the opposite direction of God and have turned yourself around and with all of your might choosing God each and every day. If that describes you, we're going to have a couple of our shepherds down here at the front come talk to them as we stand and sing together.